My name is Emily. I'm the kids director here. I'm going to read the word for us today. So if you could please stand. This is Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Good. All right. <laughs> good morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Sojourn, and always good to gather with you uh, on each Lord's Day to worship, to sing songs together, to praise our God and King, and now to open up His words. So let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin our time in His Word this morning. Father, we come before you this morning. I come before you this morning, and just the reality of standing before this group of people to open your word is a humbling reality. God, this is your word, living and active, that you've given to us to reveal yourself to us, to help us understand who we are in relation to you. So God, I just pray for help this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit that your word would go out and not return void, that it would go out and impact lives this morning. Father, I pray that you would be exalted this morning. God, you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of all glory. You are awesome. So Lord, help us to receive your word this morning. Implant it in us and use it to revive us, to transform us, to make us wise, to encourage us, to bring life today. And Lord, I just ask by the power of the Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When you think of the word absurd, what comes to mind for you? Think about it for a second. Think about the word absurd. Absurdity happens when things are so ill-fitting or ill-suited to their purpose or situation that they seem just completely ridiculous. It'd be like going to a job interview wearing a clown costume, but the job interview is not for the circus. Or, or going to your dog and demanding that your dog tell you what time it is. You, you would think those, things, those are absurd things to do or say. There's there absurd statements that we can make as well. Like if you had said last October that the Capitals would get out of the second round of the playoffs, you would have said, that's absurd. But thankfully that's changed. For something to be absurd, it has to be seemingly ridiculous or silly. It just doesn't make any sense. There's a whole school of philosophy that has declared that life is absurd because life is essentially meaningless. Albert Camus is one of the most famous proponents and French philosopher that wrote a lot about this in one of his most famous essays, The Myth of Sisyphus. Because Camus outright rejected, he, he didn't believe in God, he sought some other way to explain life. He couldn't conceive of a higher being, and so he couldn't conceive of a higher purpose in life. And so, for Albert Camus, that meant declaring that life was absurd. Life was meaningless. And he said that all we can do with that is accept the absurdity of life and then revolt against it. 
without a belief in God, life can at times seem pretty absurd. But therein lies the problem. Belief in God is what makes life meaningful. Belief in God is what gives purpose to our lives. It's the basis of hope in a broken world. And in a broken world, you and I can't endure the brokenness that we find ourselves in by declaring life to be absurd and then revolting against it, just seeking to pursue kind of a hedonistic happiness. No, instead, we rebel by having faith in a good God, a God who is at work even when we don't always know exactly what he's up to. So the title and the focus of our sermon today is Absurd Faith. And to a non-believing world, faith in and of itself is absurd. And so the title in some ways is kind of redundant. To have faith is to be absurd. Maybe that's what you believe today. And if that's where you find yourself questioning the validity of having faith in a supernatural being in God, first off, just know we're glad that you're here. We want this to be a community and a place where you can come and you can wrestle with questions about who God is and and what it means to know him and if he exists and what his purpose is and what faith is and who Jesus is. But for us as a church, what I want to call us to today and going forward as a church is that we would be a church that's marked by absurd faith. Over the last few weeks, we've been in a sermon series that we've titled Our Confident Hopes, and we've been looking at God's Word and talking about why we exist as a church and how we will continue to exist as a church. And out of all of those things that we've talked about over the last few weeks, we've been having conversations with you as members of the Sojourn Church, and the elders have been thinking and praying and talking through what God wants us to do as a church, and we've come up with what we're calling our 16 confidence hopes. 16 things that we're striving to see become a reality, become a part of the culture and the life of sojourn over the next three to five years and beyond. Let me say, if you haven't had a chance to listen to the previous four sermons in this series, I'd encourage you to go online and listen to them or download our app and listen to the sermons on your way into work this week, whatever time you have. The reason being because this really is helping to shape and and talk through what it means for us to be who we are and what God's called us to do as a church. And so whether you've been here for a long time or this is your first Sunday here, that'll give you a good picture of what we want to be about. Last week, Eric encouraged and challenged us from Luke 18 to be a church that's marked by a culture of persistent prayer. And so today we're going to dovetail off of that and talk about what it means to be a church marked by absurd faith. So here's kind of our big idea for the day. The hope that I want us to embody is that we would be a church that consistently lives with an absurd faith in an amazing God. That we would be a church that consistently lives with an absurd faith in an amazing God. See, I believe that when we embody an every member ministry culture of disciples making disciples, the one-two punch of persistent prayer and absurd faith is the starting place for us to actually see any of these 16 hopes become realities. We have to be praying consistently, praying persistently, and praying with faith that God would bring these things about. So with that, let's open up to Ephesians chapter 3 and jump into God's word this morning. May he bless the preaching of his word. Obviously, our text that Emily just read is pretty short, just two verses. So let me give you a little bit of context uh, about what's going on 
and what leads Paul to make the statement he does in verses 20 and 21. Paul has given an amazing explanation of the gospel in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2. And the most simplest of summaries of what Paul declares in those two chapters is this. All of us, every single person, is or was dead in our sin. Your rebellion against God had separated you from God. You asserted yourself to be God, and so that separated you from God. What you deserved is God's wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, made you alive in Christ. He brought new life to you through what Jesus accomplished for you, dying in your place for your sin, rising again from the grave, forever defeating Satan, sin, and death. And the way that any person... Any person, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of your gender, regardless of your material wealth or abilities, regardless of your background, any person is able to partake of this rescue, partake of this remedy, this salvation by faith. By believing that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he came to do, to be a substitute for you, to take on God's wrath that you deserve. Believing that he alone is the way to be forgiven of sin and reconciled to a holy God. It is by grace alone that anyone is saved. There's nothing, absolutely nothing that you can do to earn favor from God. There's nothing you can do to exact forgiveness from God. Jesus purchased that for you. That is the good news of the gospel. Then in chapter 3, Paul declares that he has been sent to preach this gospel, this good news, to what he calls the Gentiles. That is to say that the gospel, this good news of reconciliation to God, isn't just for Jewish people, it's for all people. And on top of that, it's actually through the church, he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God, this good news of the gospel that's been revealed to all time for all people, is brought about through the church to preach, to proclaim, to be made known to the physical and spiritual world. Then he ends this section, this first half of uh, chapter 3, declaring that once we were far off, once we were separated from God, but because of sin we couldn't have a relationship, but now God's reconciled us to himself through Christ. And because of that, you can have boldness and confidence through your faith in Jesus. And it's out of that that Paul prays this prayer for the Ephesians. Eric mentioned this text last week. He prays to the Ephesians in ver- prays for the Ephesians in verses 14 through 19 and he prays two specific things. He prays that they would understand the greatness of the love of Christ. They'd be able to comprehend it all that he's done for them and that they'd be filled with all the fullness of God. And that's an intense prayer. He's praying that the Ephesians would understand the incomprehensible nature of Jesus' sacrificial love for them. He's just told us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, it's going to take all eternity for God to explain his grace to us. Yet here he's praying that they would understand the depth of Christ's love for them. And then he's praying that they would be filled up with all that God is. That the eternal fullness and unending reality of who God is would be theirs. Now that sounds, I mean, in some level, it kind of sounds ridiculous for Paul to be praying this. 
And Paul's fired up at this point, and so he does what seems to be a natural response to expounding on the riches of God's grace towards us in Jesus. He explodes in worship. It's like he can't handle it anymore. He can't just keep writing this. Like, I just imagine him getting up, like, as he's talking to the guy writing it down, just being like, oh my goodness, do we know how great our God is? So he explodes in this worship and exaltation that we see in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. These two verses can be described as a doxology. A doxology is a fancy way of saying, give praise to God. A doxology is a short hymn of praise. The word doxology literally means glory saying. It's ascribing glory to God for who he is and what he has done or what he is doing. Maybe if you grew up in the church or have been around the church before you've sung something called the doxology, which is just a short hymn of giving praise to our triune God. All people on earth, all heavenly host, praising our God. But Paul's doxology serves two purposes. The first purpose is it's an overflow of praise. Now to him be glory. In the Old Testament, the word glory has the sense of, of heaviness or weightiness. It's about God's overwhelming presence and greatness. And in the New Testament, Paul brings that in, that same idea. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul's talking to the Corinthians, and he's saying, listen, you're going through difficulty. You're experiencing affliction and trial and challenges, but all of those things, all of your sufferings are preparing you. They're just light and momentary, he says, because they're preparing you for the eternal weight of glory where we will be fully in the presence of God and it will completely overwhelm you. Not in the sense of judgment, but overwhelm you with the ridiculous love and lavish grace he's given to you if you are in Christ. But the second purpose of this doxology is to be instructive for the Ephesians and to be instructive for us. How so? Well, Paul has just explained and expounded on the gospel. He's just prayed some pretty bold things for God's people. And it might be tempting in that moment for the Ephesians and maybe for us to see what Paul says and think, okay, Paul, that sounds nice. There's a nice rhetorical effect to what you're saying that you're praying for us, but is it very realistic? The Ephesians could think, we could think, Paul, aren't you overshooting it a little bit? Aren't you overstating it? Is that a little much to be praying for? Has Paul asked too much of God? And that's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Can we ask too much of God? And Paul's answer, very simply, is absolutely not. You can not out-ask God. And so Paul gives this amazingly rich doxology. Let me read it for us again. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You think praying for seemingly crazy things is crazy? Paul says, no way. Why? Because our God is able. He's able. Now, able is an important word. I don't want us to just brush by it. To be able means to have the power, the skill, the means, the opportunity to do something. 
Now, many of us here this morning are able to do a lot of things. I am able to drive a car. I am able most of the time to drive a golf ball down the fairway. I'm able to lift a certain amount of weight. I'm able to catch a baseball. I'm able to hear. I'm able to listen. I'm able to speak publicly. But I am not able to speak Korean or cook an amazing meal. I've got a very limited repertoire when it comes to cooking. Spaghetti, grilled cheese, maybe, peanut butter and jelly, that's about it. I'm not able to perform surgery. I'm not able to play the piano. So when Paul says God is able, what is it that he's able to do? Is it some things, a few things, most things, but not everything, only certain kinds of things? No, what does he say? He is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Far more abundantly. The idea behind far more abundantly is infinitely more than. In other words, there is no limit to what God can do. As one scholar says, God's capacity for giving far exceeds his people's capacity for asking or even imagining. Brothers and sisters, you can't out-ask God. You can't out-think God. You can't out-imagine what God is capable of. That seems absurd. And it requires a seemingly absurd faith, believing that God is able. See, what Paul is talking about here is faith. But this faith is not just believing in God. I think, I would guess most of us have seen the movie Elf. Have you seen the movie Elf? Well, Amy and I looked that up. It's, that's 15 years old. That's crazy. You've seen the movie Elf, right? So the crux of the issue on Christmas Eve with Santa's sleigh, what is it? Not enough people believe in Santa, which is what powers Santa's sleigh. And so the clausometer on the sleigh is too low. In fact, in the 70s, I think he says, they had to install a jet turbine to help fuel the sleigh to fly. And so on Christmas Eve, the, the sleigh is stuck in Central Park, and the, the goal is they just need more people to believe in Santa. In other words, Santa's ability to do anything, to get anywhere, is contingent on the belief of the people. Is that what we're talking about here? If we believe enough in God, then God is able Is that the kind of faith Paul is calling us to? No. We remember from from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not believing in God. It's believing God. It's taking him at his word. See, listen, here's the key thing I want us to understand. God is able not to, because of the proportion of our faith. He is able because of who he is. He's able because of who he is. Theologians and scholars, in seeking to help us understand and comprehend the incomprehensible God that we worship, have used characteristics and attributes to describe God's character and nature. And there's a a long list of those, a ton that we could talk about. I want to give us six and highlight six for us this morning. Our God, the God that we worship, is omniscient. 
It means that he is all-knowing. Everything that can be known is known by God, past, present, and the future. There's nothing that God's unaware of. There's nothing that's surprising to God, that he doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. He has exhaustive knowledge about all things. He's omniscient. God is also omnipotent, meaning that he's all-powerful. There's nothing that God's not able to do and bring about. God called all of creation into existence by the word of his mouth and the power that existed within him. He has all power. Our God is eternal. That means there is no beginning and no end with our God. He is forever. There was never a time when God was not. And there never will be a time when God is not. Our God exists for all eternity. That's difficult for us to wrap our minds around because there is nothing in your life that's eternal in that sense. We can't use any analogies to try and understand the eternality of God except to try and think of it. We think hard about it. Smoke might start to come out of our ears. God is self-sufficient. That means there's no dependency. He has no dependency on anything or anyone. He exists within himself and he's sufficient within himself. God is faithful. He does what he says he will do, and he is who he says that he is. There's consistency with him. He's faithful. And lastly, what may be the most important attribute that ties all of those things together is God is immutable. The word immutable means that God is unchanging. God, our God, the one that we worship is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will never not be who he has always been. So he's never going to run out of all knowledge. He's never going to run out of all power. He's never going to stop being eternal. He's never going to become dependent on something else or someone else. He's never going to not be faithful. He's unchanging. Sojourn, he is able to do far more abundantly than we ask far more than we can think because we have great faith in a great God. We we can think about that in that way that as we set our gaze on him, he is able because of who he is. See, the absurdity of our faith isn't about us. It's about who our faith is in. And to an unbelieving world, our faith in God can appear to be ridiculous, but that's only because those who have not yet believed don't know who our God is. Friends, if you know Christ, if you have a relationship with Jesus, if you have this in front of you, then you know. You have that knowledge. God has revealed himself to us through his word. He's revealed himself to us through the world. And he has declared to us and shown us over and over and over again that he can be trusted. Our God that we just talked about and explained some of his attributes of our God is faithful to his plans and his purposes and his people. And that will never, ever, ever change. You and I can have an absurd faith because we have an amazingly faithful God. 2 Corinthians is one of my favorite books of the Bible. And if you've been doing the community Bible reading plan, you've been reading through 2 Corinthians over the last few weeks. And I hope it's been refreshing to you. At the very beginning of chapter 1, Paul writes a profound truth and encouragement for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, he says this. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Who's the him? Jesus. 
All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. See, when you're struggling to believe that God is faithful, we don't have to look any further than the cross of Christ in the empty tomb to see a display of God's amazing faithfulness. God said that he was going to bring about rescue. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he tells us he's going to bring about redemption, that he would restore us, that he would be our God and we would be his people. God said that he would send a redeemer to redeem us and free us from our slavery to sin and death. And guess what? In Christ, he has done all of that. That's the God who we can have an absurd faith in. That we look to Jesus, we see what Christ has accomplished for us and see just looking to that over and over again, being reminded of that over and over again, that our God is faithful. See, the truth that Paul declares in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 is directly tied to prayer. Because it's in prayer, it's in communicating to God that we are approaching this amazing God. This amazing God that deserves all glory and in prayer that we're asking him to do more than we can ask, to do more than we can think, to do more than we can imagine. Last week, Eric did a great job calling us to be a church that's marked by persistent prayer, looking at Luke 18, 1 through 8. And in Luke 18, 1, Luke writes this about Jesus. He says, and he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. Ought to always pray and not lose heart. To keep persistently coming to God in prayer. And then at the end, in verse 8, talking about God's faithfulness to come through, he says this, Luke 18, 8, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. And then he says this, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, when Jesus comes again, will he find faith on earth? Will he find faith? Will he find faith in our world? Will he find faith at Sojourn Church? See, the reality is this, that you and I will not persistently pray if we do not have an absurd faith in an amazing God who can do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. But listen, I know you struggle with this. And the reason I know you struggle with this is because I struggle with this. A faith so intense, so strong, that the world would look at you and think you're crazy, that you're absurd. That sounds great. We can all say, yes, that sounds awesome. But the reality is sometimes I feel like it isn't an absurd faith that I have, but a feeble faith, a weak faith. I've said this before, but I think it's worth repeating again. When we struggle to have faith, when we struggle to believe that God is able, we tend towards either fear or foolishness. When when you struggle to have faith, this absurd faith, an amazing God, your tendency is to go either towards fear or foolishness. When we fear, we don't believe God can. We don't believe God will be faithful to his plans and promises and his people. We don't believe that he will be faithful to his character and his nature. And so what we can tend to do in our fear is to try and take control of situations. Anxiety rises up within us. Fear 
leads us to freeze up and not do what God is calling us to do. When we are foolish, similarly, we don't believe God can. We don't believe God will be faithful to his plans and promises and his people. And so we act. We have to. We have to move apart from him and his timing. When we tend towards foolishness, what we tend towards is rashness. We, we prize immediacy and quickness above wisdom and patience. Foolishness leads to being fast and furious instead of letting God lead and guide. So many times throughout the scriptures, especially in the Psalms, we see the psalmist reciting over again, waiting on the Lord, waiting on the Lord. And that's a struggle of faith. So for me, where I tend to go when I'm struggling with faith is I tend to go towards fear. And what is it for you? Fear or foolishness? See, when you lack faith, when you tend towards fear or foolishness, both of those things can lead to despair. And then when we despair, when something isn't going the way that we would hope that it would go, we're not seeing God do what we want him to do in that particular moment in our lives, we can be tempted to sin then. Because we can think, God, you're not for me. God, I don't even know if you're good. I don't even know if you're with me. So who cares? Who gives a rip? I'm just going to go sin. Does it even really matter anyway? Do you ever feel that way? See, the core of what's going on in that moment is that what we want most in that moment isn't necessarily more of God. It isn't necessarily more of God's will. It's more of us, more of our will. We desire comfort. We desire peace. We desire joy. We desire wholeness and happiness. And none of those things in and of themselves are bad things. But when we lack faith and seek to find our comfort and our peace and our wholeness and our joy and happiness in our God, we, we, we've set faith aside. We lean towards fear or foolishness. And God may still be in the picture in your life. He may still even be in the car on the journey that you're on. But instead of being the driver of that car, instead of being the one who's directing and guiding where you're going, God's just sitting in the back seat. He's just a means to an end. See, I think if we're honest, we can look at this and we can read to him who is able, but we often live and pray like it says him who is unable. But in the midst of both of these, the same simple prayer is relevant for, for us. Whether we tend towards fear or foolishness is simply this, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, God, that you're all-knowing. I believe you're all-powerful. I believe you're ever-present. I believe you're eternal and self-sufficient. God, I believe you're faithful. I believe you're unchanging. I believe, God, you can do more than I ask or think, but right now I'm having a hard time believing. That's the paradox of faith and the need for enduring and patient grace. See, God's faithfulness is always on display, and friends, we can be encouraged because even when you are struggling to be faithful, when you are faithless, God remains faithful. And the beauty of absurd faith in an amazing God, a God full of mercy and grace, is that even when you struggle to believe, even when you're wrestling with faith, Jesus, the faithful one, redeems that also. 
Jesus' blood covers over your unbelief. Because Jesus either died for your unbelief or he didn't die for anything. It covers over you. Listen, church, a call to faith isn't a call to muster up something within. Like just try harder to believe more. No, a call to faith is to gaze on our God. To believe he is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. First and foremost, to forgive you and free you from your sin because of what Jesus has done. And then to prepare you for eternity. To be in his presence forever. And he does that by transforming you from one degree of glory to another. Tearing away the scales of sin in your life. And restoring the image of Jesus in you. Friends, faith is always a gift from God to you. It's the antithesis of works, the opposite of works. Works say we have to do something to get something from God. Works are what Santa Claus asks for if you want something good from him. You better be good. You better get it all together. You better have it all right. And then I'll hook you up. No, what we see in God is that God gives faith so that we might be able to believe that he will give good things to us because of who he is. Romans 8, and, who, and will he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, not also with him graciously give us all things? What this means then is simply this. Your confidence isn't in your faith. No, your confidence is in God and his faithfulness seen most clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All his promises are yes and amen. And so let me ask you first, is is your faith, is your faith in Christ and what he's done for you or is it still in yourself? Is it in Christ or is it still in yourself? Have you actually trusted in Jesus, in his finished work, dying on a Roman cross to pay for your sin, to pay for your self-sufficiency? rising again to give you new life now and forever? Have you actually trusted in Christ or are you just giving lip service to Jesus? Is God riding the back seat of the car of your life? If you haven't, there's no better time than right now in this moment to ask God to save you, to ask God to rescue you. It's why we're here as a church. We want you to know our amazing God. So pray, even in your seat right now, ask God to reveal himself to you. Ask him to save you. Trust in Christ. For those of you that have already become followers of Jesus, those of you who by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, have been saved from your sin, those that call sojourn your church, if we are going to be a church that persistently prays and does so with absurd faith, a faith that the world looks at and thinks, that's insane, that's ridiculous, that's silly. An absurd faith that doesn't revolt against meaninglessness, but revolts against darkness and sin and embraces the highest meaning in life, that because of Christ, you are a beloved child of God. That's who you are now. You're a beloved child of the Most High God. Then let's not pray two small prayers as if we serve a too small God who's unable. Now let's pray faith-filled prayers to the one true God who is insanely able and amazing, who's utterly holy. And all the other attributes that we've talked about, who's 
knows all things and is all-powerful and is eternal and self-sufficient and unchanging, the God who is transcendent and imminent, who's high and lifted up and dwells with us, the God who's in the heavens and does all that he pleases and who dwells with the lowly and humble and contrite in heart. Friends, let's elevate our view of God. We need to see him high and lifted up for who he is and then live life in light of his glorious grace and presence. To close, I want to point something really important out in our text that we don't, don't want us to skip over today. Look at it again. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. He says all these things. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Where is the power that he says at work? Where is it? Is it in the world? Is it in the universe? In someone else? No, in us, in the church. See, what Paul is saying isn't just ask God to do crazy things for the sake of doing crazy things. This isn't even something that we just kind of co-opt for ourselves just to make it about our own personal lives. No, he's talking about praying to God in this way for him to do things in and through us. See, God, Paul's not painting a picture of God where he's a genie in the bottle to give you whatever it is that you wish. No, he is the sovereign king of all things for all time. And the power that's at work within the church is to do this, to conform each and every one of us more and more to the image of Jesus and to advance the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. So Paul says to him, to God be the glory in the church, in the redeemed people of God and in Christ for how long? Throughout all generations, forever and ever. In man school, we were memorizing Psalm 19. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. We can go outside and we can look up and we can be amazed at the creation that exists around us. It screams of God's glory. When Jesus walks into Jerusalem and the, the Pharisees don't want people to worship Jesus, he says, If these people stop worshiping me, the stones will cry out in worship of me. But do you catch what Paul's saying here? His glory is even more fully realized in and through the church. The redeemed, reconciled people of God transferred from death to life, from darkness to light. As we ask him to work in us and through us and to do so far more abundantly than we can even imagine him doing. See, God says to us even now, church, he says, I can do more in this church I can do more through this church than you think I can. Think of something. Think of something. I can do more than that. Think of something else. I can do more than that. That's what our God's saying to us. Do you believe that, church? That is absurd faith. See, these 16 confident hopes that we've begun preaching through and we'll come back to again in the fall, they're not just a random group of things that we put down on a sheet of paper. They are hopes that are rooted in the call and command of Jesus to us, to his church. And so as we call one another to embody an every member ministry culture of disciples making disciples, let's persistently pray for God to do more than we can ask, more than we can imagine in us and through us, that he would blow us out of the water and outdo anything we hope to see him do so that we might stand in awe and make it clear to any and all who inquire to God be the glory. Let's not tend towards fear. 
Let's not tend towards foolishness. But faith in an amazingly enormous, exceedingly faithful God who can absolutely do absurd things. Paul ends this doxology with amen. Amen is the response of the congregation to these truths. It's a declaration of yes, this is true. Yes, we believe. Yes, this is our God. So sojourn together. Let's say amen. 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 Every week at Sojourn, we get to take communion together to testify to this truth that Jesus died for our sin and rose again to give us new life. We eat the bread to remember that Christ's body was broken for us. We drink the cup to remember that his blood was shed for us, that we might be forgiven, that we might be set free. Communion every week is both our individual and corporate yes and amen. Every week when you come to partake of the elements, the person person serving you speaks over you what Jesus has done for you. And I know some of you already do this, but let me encourage all of us to do this this morning. When they look you in the eyes this morning, when you take that piece of bread and they say the body of Christ was broken for you, say amen. And when the next person looks you in the eyes and they say the blood of Christ was shed for you, say amen. Because he has done it, and he is unchangingly faithful. And then let's stand up together and raise our voices in praise to our great God. For those of you that are here this morning that are not followers of Jesus, we're so grateful God brought you to gather with us, and we would just ask that you not come forward to take communion. And the reason for that is because this is what I just said. It's our, it's our declaration of yes and amen that our only hope is in Christ. And so if you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ, we would just ask you to hang in your seat. But again, let me implore you this morning. Don't be concerned about taking the bread and the cup. We want you to take Jesus. So pray. Ask God to save you this morning. If you have questions about what it means to know Jesus or follow Jesus, let somebody around you know. We'd love to journey with you in that. Those of you that will come forward, come whenever you're ready. There's tables in the back. There's tables in the front. And then we'll join together in raising our voices to our great God and King. Let's pray. Great, awesome, holy, merciful, gracious, loving, all-powerful, all-knowing, faithful, eternal, unchanging God. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for making a way for us who were born into this world as sinners separated from you, for making a way for us to be reconciled to you, to not only be known by you, but loved by you, and to know you, to have a relationship with you now and forever. God, may you continue to cultivate within us an absurd faith in you, our amazing God. Thank you for showing your faithfulness to us in Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Come forward when you're ready.